0: Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Hey folks, welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I am attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial for legal insurrection. Today's content is sponsored by CCWSA, a provider of legal service membership, So many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. CCW Safe and Effect promises to pay their members legal expenses if their member is involved in a use of force event. And those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. A typical aggravated assault charge, what can happen if you simply point your gun at another person in self-defense, don't fire a shot, don't hurt anybody, can risk a 10 or 20 year felony sentence and cost as much as thirty dollars to $50,000 in legal fees to defend. And that's just for the pre- trial expense. If you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be useful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the legal resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you'd want it fought. Now, I've looked at all these types of services you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is the best fit for me. I'm a member. My wife Emily is a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do encourage you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash CCW safe. And if you do decide to become a member of CCW safe, you can save 10% off your membership at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash CCW safe using the discount code LOSD 10. That's LOSD for law of self defense and the number 10. Anyone interested in a free podcast version of our daily legal commentary and analysis of the Chauvin trial can access the Law of Self-Defense news and Q&A podcast available on most every podcast platform, including Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, Apple, Google. You can just get a simple RSS feed. Just go to com slash free podcast to get those links. Today's court proceedings brought us only two new state's witnesses, largely because the court had decided to adjourn midday, presumably to get an early start on the weekend. The first of these was MPD Sergeant John Edwards, whose testimony was perhaps administratively necessary, but added little to either the narrative of guilt or of innocence in this trial. I'll only cover Sergeant Edwards' testimony briefly. The second witness was MPD homicide Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, whose testimony was more interesting and which we'll cover in greater detail below. So first, Sergeant John Edwards, you may recall from yesterday's testimony of now retired Sergeant Pluger that it was Pluger who was the sergeant in charge of Chauvin, Tau, Lane and King on the date of Floyd's arrest. As it became clear that this was a use-of-force event, it was normal for the sergeant to take on a more hands-on approach to the event per MPD policy. Also per MPD policy, however, as it became known that Floyd might die and certainly was in bad condition, it became clear to everybody that this was likely to turn into what's called a critical incident. That's an MPD term of art for a police use of force that involves the death or serious injury of an officer or suspect. This is important because once an MPD use of force becomes identified as a critical incidence, the substantive investigation and management of that event is taken from the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department and handed off to the state level Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Think of the BCA as Minnesota's own state FBI. This is a common and arguably wise policy in that it allows for the investigation of police use of force without the potential conflict of interest concerns that can arise when a police department is allowed to investigate its own potential misconduct. It also means, however, that MPD officers are no longer involved with the case and therefore would have had only a very transient role in investigating the event, only limited knowledge of the evidence of that event, and therefore only a poorly informed opinion about whether the use of force involved was justified. It's just not their job anymore. In the case of Sergeant Edwards, his only real involvement in this event was to take over at shift change from Sergeant Pluger. Edwards engaged in some Uh, Routine activities on site, such as having officers run crime scene tape to secure the relevant areas of the scene, begin to search out witnesses, canvas the area for witnesses uh, who might be willing to give statements, and so forth. Within an hour or two after arriving on scene, however, when it became known that Floyd had died, and this was now officially a critical incident, Sergeant Edwards and every other member of MPD involved knew that their substantive role in the case was effectively over. At that point, they did the minimum required to be prepared to smoothly hand over the case to BCA. This was certainly true of Sergeant Edwards, as we learned through his testimony as the state stepped him through his activities at the scene that evening of May 25th, 2020, All of these activities were largely administrative in nature, and none of Edwards' testimony added much substantive value to understanding this case. Really, all the evidence about the event of which Edwards was aware consisted of body camera footage shown to him by the prosecution, and I expect the prosecution showed him that limited body of evidence simply so they could ask him about his poorly informed opinions based on that partial evidence. This wasn't a big deal with respect to Edwards, but became a bigger deal when the same approach was taken with the next witness, Lieutenant Zimmerman. Indeed, so limited was the utility of Edwards' testimony that the defense did not even bother subjecting him to cross-examination. So all the testimony we have from Edwards was based on his direct questioning by the state. Prosecutor Schleider conducted direct here, and you can watch that in the video of Edwards' direct questioning embedded in the text version of today's content. The second and last state's witness of the day was MPD homicide Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman. It's notable that he is apparently the most senior of MPD's homicide detectives. Direct questioning of Zimmerman was conducted by Prosecutor Frank taking over from Schleider, and that raises an interesting and noteworthy point. Today, one of the television commentators chattering away while the court was recessed for a break mentioned that the state had some 15 or so attorneys admitted on the case by Judge Cahill. I thought that number was more like 10 or 12, but who knows, maybe some more were added. Regardless, the point remains the same. There is only one defense attorney, Eric Nelson. The woman sitting behind him in the video is technically an attorney. She's passed the bar, but I believe she passed the bar like a week ago or some similarly short time. She's not really a lawyer on the legal team in any substantive sense. And that appears to be it for Nelson's quote unquote team. Those of you who followed my George Zimmerman coverage, presumably no relation to Lieutenant Zimmerman here, will recall that George always had two lawyers in court with him, Mark O'Mara and Don West. And those two did a masterful job of switching out so as to achieve a best fit in questioning different witnesses. The prosecution in George Zimmerman case, in contrast, has some four or five or six attorneys actively on the case. But with respect to the defense team in that trial, largely unseen was a substantial support staff backing up O'Mara and West. That's one of the factors that led to that legal defense billing out at about $1.7 million. Here, in this case, Nelson has himself a newly barred, newly admitted assistant, and that's it. The situation is rather like a wrestling match in which one competitor fights alone against 10 or 15 opponents who can tag each other in or out as they like. On a more practical level, it means, for example, that each prosecutor need have command of every detail of only the subset of witnesses that they intend to personally question. Whereas in contrast, Eric Nelson must have complete command of every detail of every single witness. It also means that if any single prosecutor feels like, eh, they might be a bit off that day, they can tag in a colleague to take their place. Eric Nelson can tag in nobody. And this stuff matters, folks, especially in an extraordinarily long trial such as this one. It's worth noting, and most people don't know this, but most murder trials, by which I mean real murder, intentional murder, not this unintentional killing that Minnesota strangely insists on labeling murder, most murder trials last only a day or two or three Criminal trials of three and four weeks just don't happen in the real world, the normal course of events, but only in the most exceptional cases, often highly politically charged cases such as this one. I wrote in a recent blog post how impressed I've been by Nelson's performance in the trial proper following jury selection, and that's true. I stand by that. Whether he can maintain that level of performance for two, three, four weeks is another question entirely. I certainly hope he can. Okay, sorry for that diversion. Let's get back to Lieutenant Zimmerman. Uh, Perhaps the best way to describe Lieutenant Zimmerman is well-seasoned. He joined the MPD back in 1985, after a few years as as a sheriff's deputy, back in the days when cops carried a gun, handcuffs, maybe a nightstick, and that was about it, folks. Often back then, for my own recollection, they often didn't even carry radios. Indeed, often not even every squad car had a radio. Now, Prosecutor Frank had a very specific role in mind for Zimmerman, and it had little to do with the substantive factors in this case, and there's good reason it had little to do with the substantive factors in this case, because Zimmerman knows virtually none of the relevant evidence of the case. Much as with Sergeant Edward, Zimmerman was almost immediately aware that this was going to be a critical incident, and promptly handed over to BCA. Indeed, as it was, in fact, handed over within two or three hours of Zimmerman's involvement. Zimmerman's role then was largely as a transient caretaker of the case to ensure the uniformed officers were doing the things they were supposed to be doing to secure evidence, run crime scene, tape, canvas for witnesses, stuff like that. But everybody involved, including Zimmerman, was aware that by the time they went to bed that evening, this would be a case entirely in the hands of BCA with effectively zero involvement by MPD. So, If Frank would not be able to make use of Zimmerman to testify substantively about the case, for what purpose could Frank use Zimmerman? Well, as a purported expert on MPD use of force policies, able to provide an authoritative or purportedly authoritative determination that Chauvin's use of force upon Floyd was unjustifiable. Before getting to that, of course, Frank stepped Zimmerman through his administrative role in the case as a transient caretaker, much as Prosecutor uh, Schleider had done earlier with respect to Sergeant Edwards. Then we get to the real point of having Zimmerman testify. Frank asked Zimmerman if he'd been trained by MPD on use of force, if he was familiar with MPD use of force policies, and importantly, if he'd viewed the body cam footage of the Floyd event. Now, the body cam footage is important here because unless Zimmerman had viewed at least that limited body of evidence, he'd have zero basis on which to have a use of force opinion. Accordingly, the prosecution had fed him the limited body of evidence consisting of the body camera footage, specifically so they could ask for his use of force opinion in court and have that opinion based on more than zero knowledge of the evidence. And Zimmerman was happy to comply, providing Frank with every answer the prosecutor could have hoped for. The placement of the knee on the neck, Zimmerman said, qualified as deadly force because it could kill someone. Unmentioned here by either prosecution or defense, although I expect the defense will come back to this point from a more advantageous position than cross on a state's witness, is that the MPD training policies and manual in effect on May 25th, 2020 explicitly allowed for and indeed provided photographic illustrations of knee on the neck use of force as appropriate non-deadly restraint of a suspect. Now, the city of Minneapolis did pass a law in July 2020 banning just about anything resembling a chokehold, but that was obviously new policy adopted after the Floyd event. Asked by Frank if a suspect who was handcuffed could still represent a threat to the officers, Zimmerman answered definitively in the negative. This is, of course, utter nonsense. The reason Officer Tao was looking for a hobble device in the squad car to further restrain Floyd, ultimately the hobble was never used, was because Floyd had kicked at the officers trying to restrain him on the ground. Clearly, a handcuffed suspect can still be a physical danger to officers. Indeed, I'm personally aware of several instances in which handcuffed suspects have shot and killed officers. Further, the duty of the officer in restraining a suspect is not merely to protect the officer from the suspect, but also to protect other officers from the suspect, the public from the suspect, and even to protect the suspect from the suspect. And this last is a genuine factor when dealing with a violently noncompliant, apparently intoxicated, very large and powerful suspect while on one of the busiest intersections in the city, as in this case. Frank also asked Zimmerman about the dangers of the prone position for a handcuffed suspect driving the prosecution narrative that positional asphyxia had killed Floyd. And Zimmerman was happy to talk about how he'd been trained for decades about the dangers of positional asphyxia and the importance of bringing a handcuffed suspect to a seated or recovery position as soon as possible. Frank asked Zimmerman about the duty of an officer to provide care to a suspect in need, even if the officers had already called for an ambulance, and Zimmerman affirmed that the officers had such a duty while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. About this point, the defense objected to the line of questioning, I didn't hear why likely on the grounds that Zimmerman was speaking in an entirely hypothetical sense without any grounding or foundation in the actual facts of this actual event. And this led to a rather lengthy sidebar during which the court recessed for its morning break. When the court returned, it was clear that Frank had been instructed by Cahill to tie the questioning to the case. It was at this point that Frank asked Zimmerman about his reviewing of the body camera evidence. And with this foundation established, Frank then asked Zimmerman the very narrow question, I'm sure Judge Cahill had told him to be narrow, of whether, based solely on that body camera footage and based on Zimmerman's training and experience, did Zimmerman believe Chauvin's use of force was unnecessary? Zimmerman's response, totally unnecessary. And that pretty much concluded the direct questioning of Zimmerman by the prosecution. The defect in this line of questioning from a substantive perspective is obvious, The officers on scene in general, and Chauvin in particular, were not making their use of force decisions based solely on body camera footage or at all on body camera footage. They were making their use of force decisions based on the totality of the circumstances. Indeed, the body cameras do not even capture what the officers actually see because a turn of the head without a turn of the body means the officer is viewing events not captured by the camera. The body camera obviously doesn't at all capture non-visible evidence, such as feeling muscular resistance by a suspect, the perception of traffic moving up and down the street only feet away, the knowledge that EMS is en route on a Code 3 with lights and sirens, and more. It's as if there were 20 possible sources of information driving the use-of-force decision making of the officers on scene, and Zimmerman was asked to give his use-of-force assessment based on only one of those sources of information. If that's all the substantive information that Zimmerman had, and it was, then he's simply ill informed. And if he's ill informed, then his opinion is equally ill informed. Now, to his credit, Nelson did an excellent job clarifying this reality, getting Zimmerman to agree to a long list of factors other than what might be captured on a body camera as important in making use of force decisions. Nelson also noted that Zimmerman himself could hardly be characterized as anything like a use of force expert. Uh, with Zimmerman agreeing that as a longtime homicide detective, he would only very rarely be involved in the use of violent force in a suspect. And that indeed his primary exposure to use of force events consisted almost entirely of his mandatory annual training at which he, Zimmerman, was a student, not a trainer. There are, of course, limits to what defense counsel can do on cross-examination. Specifically, defense counsel is not permitted to argue with a witness, despite what you see on television, nor can defense counsel himself testify, again, despite what you see on television. These limitations were illustrated when Nelson asked Zimmerman if there was any provision under MPD policy in which a knee-on-neck would be allowed, other than as a purely opportunistic defense technique, and Zimmerman replied that there was not. Well, again, having looked at the actual MPD policy and training manual, the one in effect at the time of the Floyd event, I can state with certainty that knee on neck was explicitly permitted and even demonstrated photographically in that manual. Now, I guess Nelson might have pulled out that policy manual, shoved it in Zimmerman's face to impeach him on the stand. But I would suggest today was not the best day to bring that particular club to bear, and especially not to an older gentleman like Zimmerman. Best and I expect this is what Zimmer, uh, sorry, Nelson was thinking, best to save that club for a better time when he could bring it to bear from a position of strength rather than on cross-examination and at a time more proximate to jury deliberations. It's worth keeping in mind, folks, that everything happening in court today will have been three weeks in the past by the time the jury goes into deliberations. And in the in the intervening three weeks, the jury will have seen a mountain of additional evidence, much of it evidence, more recent evidence presented by the defense in its case in chief. Now, for the details of Nelson's cross of Zimmerman, I urge you to simply watch the actual testimony. Uh, cross examination is not very long and it's worth the watch. Overall, Zimmerman was subject to direct by Frank, cross by, of course, Nelson, and then a very brief redirect by Franken. Each of those videos separately is embedded in the text content, um, the text version of today's content. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you today. Court is obviously recessed until Monday morning. There's a possibility I'll have some background or posts for you this weekend, maybe something on the jury instructions likely in this case. But frankly, I'll have to wait to see what my wife might have planned for the weekend family-wise before I can commit to that. She's already waiting for me to take her to lunch. Until next time. Whenever that might be, I am Attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense, doing guest commentary and analysis for legal insurrection. Stay safe. <laughs>